I wanted to begin by thanking you for the work you've done and continue to do. Through the nonprofit Natives, which stands for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, and your restaurant Awamni, you've shown that decolonizing our food is not only possible, but viable. Your book, Sous Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, makes that information readily available. Chef, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you so much for having me. I would uh, be really interested to, with all the different things that you juggle, understand what a day in the life of Chef Sean Sherman looks like. Uh, I don't know. That's a complicated question. I've been on the move a lot. So um, I think since August, I've been in about 40 cities and eight countries. And uh, uh, so there's a lot of travel. There's a lot of moving around. There's a lot of meeting up with uh, different uh, tribal communities, um, food conferences, universities, school systems, etc. That's been all over the place. And um, you know, I get a lot of press, so there's always lots of interviews, and there's always lots of just, um, I, I don't mind taking the time to do some podcasts and just talking about the work and just kind of getting it out there. Um, and at the same time, I'm also overseeing the restaurant Awamni in Minneapolis that we opened and uh, um, working really hard with the nonprofit and trying to finalize this model that we have where we've been under construction for a few months and we're just about ready to launch this final model in Minneapolis of what the Indigenous Food Lab is. It's really exciting. Could you talk me through the processes of the Indigenous Food Lab and what sort of systems you're putting in place for that? Sure. So the nonprofit is Natives, which you said is North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. That's natives.org. And under Natives, we have Indigenous Food Lab um, as kind of the public entity. So we we moved into this uh, space in South Minneapolis. It's a multicultural food hall in early 2020. And it was a really perfect place. It had all the pieces we needed because the food lab was supposed to have a commercial kitchen, a classroom and some kind of space for for food, whether it's a restaurant or a small cafe or counter or something like that. So we found this really beautiful space in January 2020, and we started like moving in, setting up, getting ready to sign the lease. Um, And then we were about to sign the lease in early March when the pandemic rolled out. So then we kind of put a pause like everybody did because nobody could foresee the complete collapse of everything food related. Uh, um, we sat tight for a few for a few weeks, and then George Floyd happened right around us because we're right on Lake Street, where a lot of the um, extreme damage happened during the social uprising in Minneapolis. Um, so all the buildings around us just got completely burned to the ground and just ransacked, and they're just gone. So during that time period, we just kind of activated ourselves in the middle of the pandemic. Um, still early on, that was still like late May, early June. And then um, we started doing a lot of food relief and just getting food out there to our community. We were doing about 400 meals a day, mostly to homeless encampments around us. And then as the pandemic winter came around, we kept doing about 10,000. We started at the height, we were doing 10,000 meals a week, um, sending food out to nine out of 11 tribes across Minnesota. Um, And it was just a huge effort. And we're just doing what we could um, with a very small staff with all the rules that were in place during the COVID time period. Um, And it was crazy. And then then we had to launch a restaurant. So for the past uh, year and a half, we've just been kind of setting ourselves up, finishing the model that we set out to do. Indigenous Food Lab is set up to be kind of a regional center point for development of indigenous foodways. Um, our two main uh, focuses are just creating access to indigenous foods and creating access to indigenous education. Um, and we're doing that by opening up a small native market, which is about ready to release in South Minneapolis. So there'll be a place for people to come where we have curated indigenous food products made by indigenous food producers that were curated from all over the place. 
And um, there'll be a small counter for people to order some light food at this little food hall that we're in. And then we also have a community classroom where we're going to be teaching <clears throat> all facets of Indigenous education. So it could be anything from language to wild food and plant identification um, and processing to food preparation and uh, food preservation and culinary in general. Um, it could be crafting and beading. It could be all sorts of things, you know. So we have this huge curriculum of what is Indigenous-focused education, and we're just going to start um, pumping that out and uh, recording everything, and then stewarding all those video archives on our website so people have access to all of that knowledge. And then we're already replicating Indigenous Food Lab to move around other parts of the nation. So we're already planting seeds to open <clears throat> food labs in Anchorage, Alaska, Bozeman, Montana, Rapid City, South Dakota. And we've got other regional urban areas kind of um, in line or ready to do the next ones after we get the first models kind of set up and done. Because um, our goal is to just put these uh, food spaces all over um, the U.S. Uh, and just be, create all these regional center points to help tribal communities develop more food operations, tribal entrepreneurs or indige indigenous entrepreneurs become uh, food food operators, restaurateurs, uh, food truck operators, caterers, or food producers. Um, one of the things we've done with our kitchen too is get <clears throat> USDA, USDA licensing so we can be um, micro to mid-sized co-packers and just help get more indigenous food products out there on these market spaces too. And as we expand, we create more distribution um, points and education points to just share knowledge and share foods um, and just move around. So it's a pretty big it's a pretty big vision. Eventually, we'll be able to cross colonial borders and be in Canada, Mexico, South America, Hawaii, Australia, New Zealand, um, Southeast Asia, India, Africa, wherever we feel is best to help steward Indigenous knowledge for future generations. The amount of work that has to go into just plant, even just planting those seeds, as you said, I mean, there are some regions that are completely devastated by the way that our current colonial food system is set up. Hawaii comes to mind and as a personal significance to me, the way that, I mean, even just some of the plantations are set up and that word carries so much weight comes to mind of just the way that they harvest pineapples, ship them all out and then strip the the land of any other resources and the communities there aren't able to even get access to anything besides you know sometimes just spam or rice and like i know my grandma grew up on like just canned tuna and rice so that's it yeah um, for me it's just addressing kind of how i grew up on pine ridge in south dakota and just mm -hmm. really my main food access was commodity food program stuff you know you know, it's going to take a little bit of time, but yeah, we have seen a lot of interest. We've seen a lot more interest in indigenous foods. Um, it's opened up a larger conversation. Um, we've been able to just grow our purchasing power really large with just um, one restaurant and a nonprofit kitchen. Um, and we're just pumping tons of money into indigenous producers that way. Um, and, you know, once we get this stuff set up with this community classroom and the vision of creating this educational programming um, and stewarding it, and then also just this market space of bringing in more and more indigenous food products to highlight and showcase and sell. Um, and, you know, I think once we get all of our engines firing, we're going to start to see a lot more impact. And we're hoping that we can utilize this market to work uh, with other tribal communities and uh, just, you know, some of the places like the really rural areas, like they might just have a gas station as their main place of food which i've seen quite a bit mm -hmm. so I'm hoping that we can entice some of those small convenience stores to just give up a shelving of chips and just put indigenous food products that we could help curate and make it easy for them to reorder just so that community will have access to some indigenous food products you know whether it's dried corns or corn meals or 
whatever beans and wild rice and maples and whatever else we can curate. And for products like that, they also have can have access to your information on how to, you know, cook really spectacular things with that. You've shown with Awamni the ability to do that. What recipes and things have you seen that could be easily produced over most of the country? I think so many, you know, we did a video project with the USDA this last year and just put out a bunch of videos showing people how to try to indigenize some of those commodity food products. But, you know, we're just going to start pumping out tons of videos for people. And if we can get um, those little shelving units out there or even small um, extension models of this of this market space out there, um, then, you know, we can put up a bunch of QR codes or um, you know, create educational pinpoints around there too for people to access recipes and videos of recipes and things like that. Um, so there's just gonna be a lot of opportunity once we actually start placing this. But food access is a real issue, and we just really mm -hmm. want to start to get food out there and curate food that makes sense to the communities it's going in too. You know, um, finding what's gonna work best there and show people how to utilize things like dried corn and how to use some of the old processes of making nixtamal and and you know just. Mm -hmm. Uh, nixtamalizing the corn into hominy or pasoli or however whichever part of the country you call it um, yeah. and yeah so much opportunity i think people don't realize that sometimes the food that you know is only available at gas stations can be so harmful not only just for your body but for your mental health they've shown in studies that having access to only ultra processed foods leads to like slower mental function and obviously the effects on the body are present too so it's vital work to help grow communities. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Currently, there is a COP15 going on. It's the UN Biodiversity Conference in Canada. Um, one of the major driving points of that meeting is that Indigenous land rights are seen as a cornerstone to preserving not only biological diversity, but in literally saving our planet. Is seen as important because the UN target is preserving 30% of our natural land. And while indigenous groups only account for 5% of the world's population, the land that they sit on and safeguard is 80% of our biodiversity. Could you kind of speak and reference ways that you've learned to help capture that biodiversity and some of the things that you prepare? I think it's just really important for um, people to understand how um, deeply related indigenous peoples are to land spaces and, you know, the amount of... Uh, protection that goes into um, making sure that those land spaces stay the way they are. And there's so many great examples like Menominee Nation in Wisconsin, who's uh, curated their forests so well, like you can see the outline of the reservation from space because around them is just all patchworked farmland and you can see their like massive old growth forest around wow. that area. And same thing with uh, with uh, there's a there's a in Tama, Iowa, um, down in, in there's um, there's another reservation down there where it's the same thing. Like it's just that reservation looks like what Iowa should look like with a bunch of hickory forests and lakes and things like that. And then you crawl out of that reservation, you're just immediately back into patchwork farmland again. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and for us, it's just showcasing that, um, you know, indigenous peoples have always had a deep relationship with land spaces and a deep understanding of all the plants and all the properties of the plants, whether it's food, medicine, crafting, shelter, um, uh, clothing, lodging, whatever, whatever, whatever that world keep, gives mm -hmm. us. 
And that's a commonality with Indigenous peoples on a global scale. And so we really have to start stewarding um, Indigenous uh, knowledge bases, protecting Indigenous peoples, because we've never exited colonialism. Like we're still, they are still like murdering and removing people in the Amazon right now today, you know, for example. Um, and the colonial machine is still in full effect in many nations all over the world. And we just have to stop like um, supporting that because it's just extraction for profit and just lays the environment into waste. And so does, and, and along with a bunch of cultures and people that are from those spaces, right? So our our way of thinking is just highlighting how amazing indigenous foods are, how much more plant diversity we could have in our diets if we um, adopted more indigenous perspective and in our culinary understanding um, and just really took the time to learn the world around us um, and just took the time to really learn how um, indigenous peoples have so much to offer on a global scale on so many different pieces. Yeah, the, the lack of foresight in stripping the land of all of its resources is coming full circle. And we're now, pun intended, reaping the cost of that now. It's having these like monoculture fields are destroying not only biodiversity, but it's also harming our entire planet. Absolutely. Um, with Awamni, how have you seen your ability to, to use indigenous foods play out in a a situation where it's like for profit, right? Or you're trying to run a restaurant successfully with God, what are the profit margins? 5%. If you're, <laughs> if, you're, yeah. if you're slaying the game, you're at 5%. I'd love to hear how you've been able to, to be able to do that. Um, you know, I, I had originally um, wrote out the plan for the restaurant to be as a part of the nonprofit, and I still might do that in the future. I think that mm -hmm. is a much better model. And, uh, you know, I'd still run it as a for profit, but just owned by a nonprofit entity. And that way, if it ever falters a little bit by those small mm -hmm. percentage points, you know, it could be held up, you know, to continue. Yeah. Because this restaurant's important. It's not just a restaurant. It's really showcasing what's possible for modern indigenous foods. And mm -hmm. just, you know, we were able to hire a ton of people. We had 150 employees this summer. And, you know, there's just Congratulations. A Thanks. And, um, you know, we're just giving a lot of opportunity, a lot of education around indigenous foods and just highlighting something different because it's just the true foods of North America that people come in and that's what they taste, you know, and the philosophy that we have. So... I would down the road um, continue to try and push that um, plan. But for now, of course, we're just kind of playing the game. Um, it is a for-profit at the moment under mm -hmm. my chef brand, which is my for-profit arm. And it's going to take a little bit of constant, well, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a, con a constant amount of attention to watch your labor costs and food costs, mm -hmm. especially for downtown Minneapolis, which has the highest tax bracket in Minnesota. Um, and it's really competitive downtown too. So we have to have really good wages for everybody that works there. And we're just really trying to stand out and do whatever we can to support our workers, um, give them benefits that are worthy and, um, you know, just uh, think think ahead because we care about the people that come and work with us, you know, but it's a, it's a tough game, of course, restaurants are dangerous businesses and mm -hmm. um, but they're also very, um, they're very important, you know, one really good restaurant with a lot of intention can change the way people think on a massive area. Um, and I feel like Awamni has a potential of really shifting people's mindsets a little bit. I mean, just the fact that it exists has shifted a lot of people's mindsets and they haven't considered what indigenous food looks like, even though they're living on a, on this continent and they might not be connected to what that is. They think, Oh, you know, the United States food is, you know, bun, lettuce, tomato, right. mayo, 
meat just pre-packaged and farmed on a on a giant scale right so. i mean because you know you go you drive across the united states today and it's you could pretty much write the menu before you even walk in a restaurant it's always the same you know you have yeah. some babe birkin bake bacon bourbon <laughs> and cheeseburger and you know a caesar salad and, and tots and fries and like like, like everything mm-hmm. the same across the board you know and, you know, we're just, and that's how trends work and it's fine because people just try to jump on because they want to make money because restaurants are tough businesses, you know, but I feel like people could take the time to be intentional to, because like, I feel responsible as somebody who sells food to public and, you know, like we're one of probably one of the healthiest restaurants out there just because we're mm-hmm. cut out all the colonial ingredients and we're gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, soy-free, pork-free, basically what every fad rest, uh, diet's out there trying to get to. Um, and that's just the way we are. And we don't have to call ourselves a health food restaurant we're just serving really healthy um, food with a lot of intention i know that you had said that you know you want to eventually maybe move it into the nonprofit sphere um have you looked into like b corporations i know that rick bayless runs his re- restaurant frontera massively successful in bringing um the story of mexican culture to chicago in the 80s that's now a b corporation so he's able to kind of balance the scales that way would that be a model that might be able to work for you? Or? Yeah, because it's pretty easy to get a B, uh, like, you know, a, um, a B Corp situation set up in Minneapolis and Minnesota, I should say, because <clears throat> there's different rule sets around different areas. And like, uh, you know, we pretty much already act as a social enterprise anyways, with just mm-hmm. our actions are. Um, so like, you know, I feel like the B Corp is really just a title status. It doesn't really change anything and you don't have okay. to follow the rules or not. Like you can go through the the whole process and be, be officially certified, like getting an organic label. But I, I don't think it's that necessary to spend all that time and money for a stamp when you could just do it and just be intentional and just be different, you know, and, and, and be caring about your employees and, the, mm-hmm. and the, you know, and everything that you do and being intentional about who we're purchasing from and why we're purchasing from and all those pieces. So, and those foodways are becoming more and more important. I mean, there are people all the way in India, like Vandana Shiva, that says that monoculture is not only bad, but it's wrong and it's inappropriate. Um, who are some people that you've worked with in your area that have helped you move away from that sort of cornfield, cornfield, cornfield maze that we see throughout uh, the Midwest? I feel like I've kind of always worked on that particular situation, even before I crawled into doing this work around indigenous foods, because I'd always I started working with local foods in the early, early 2000s in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was still kind of up and coming. But, you know, I just started working directly with farmers and ranchers and using a lot more diverse crops and pieces and highlighting those in the restaurants and just using what was available locally and, you know, figuring out how to cut out those big box trucks completely. So you're not using any of that processed product when it comes down to it. And then, so that part was already, I'd already figured that out before I had the epiphany of doing indigenous foods and then really Mm -hmm. focusing at. So then I just started searching for indigenous producers, um, looking at, you know, connecting myself with indigenous seed keepers and finding out who is still farming and growing some of these heirloom varietals of indigenous seeds um, and which ones are widely available and just which ones were out there and just, you know, kind of taking a temperature check of everything. Um, but we've been doing it for years now because I started the company mm-hmm. in 2014 and I had started slowly playing around with pop-up dinners and catering probably since 2012 with this um, with with this focus. Um, but, you know, since 2014, officially opening up the sous chef, then we've had 
a food truck um, catering operation that was really successful all the way up to the non to the pandemic, launching the restaurant, launching the nonprofit, um, and just doing you know so many events and things all over all over the world really. Um, so it's totally possible to you know develop this and design this and to be really intentional about it. Are there any particular seeds that you've worked with recently that you're really excited to find or rediscover? I think that's just, you know, because uh, I've been on like Seed Savers Exchange Board for maybe seven or eight years. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, there's and there's other seed um, indigenous seed keepers out there. Um, my friend Rowan White has done a lot of amazing work over the past, you know, decade, really. And, you know, there's just a lot of really cool stuff going out there. And there's uh, there's so many seeds that have come out. Then we we feel really lucky that we're able to utilize some of these um, seeds on a more commercial scale to highlight some of them in the restaurant and show and educate the public with them, you know. And some of them we're never going to see on the market spaces. Some of them are just going to be grown and, you know, kind of kept in community and utilized in that fashion, too. But, you know, we're getting different corn from quite a few different nations. We have some from Potawatomi, from Dakota, from Anishinaabe, from uh, there's some coming from uh, like the Hadatsa, Rikara, and the three affiliated out there in the North Dakota area. We have got some from the Ute Mountain Tribe and the Pima Tribe down in Arizona. And there's just, there's more out there, you know, but it's slowly Mm -hmm. working to create this demand that uh, um, we're just helping to really drive up um, and just create a the ability to purchase an immense amount of uh, these indigenous foods um, and just, you know, push a lot of opportunity back towards um, indigenous food producers. And, you know, because the food, the indigenous food producers are really going to practice a lot of um, diverse growing situations and different farming practices and different soil techniques and and different uh, land management and stuff like that. And just permaculture in general, because everybody is helping to curate a lot of the wild foods around these farms and just making sure there's diversity there. What steps would might you recommend for someone who listens to this podcast and they might not be near Minneapolis, they might not see a, an actionable step that they can take to further the growth of indigenous foods? What might you recommend they do or try and do? I know you mentioned uh, in your TED talk that uh, lawns, lawns are fucking stupid. Um, <laughs> right. that, that was a, I love that line. I, I did a little whoop on the train. I thought it was great. I would just love to hear your opinion on things that people might be able to do to help further the cause. I think that people should just really be understanding of uh, where they live and the history of where they live and the indigenous communities that are either still around there or got pushed away from there um, and the struggles that they had to go through and just, you know, realizing that there's a lot more history that they probably don't know about because our U.S. education is abysmal at best, you know? Yeah. I think that people should really start to think about um, why indigenous foods are important um, and the indigenous knowledge bases and, you know, encourage people to just like start to connect with the world around them a little bit, like just go outside and start to learn the names of the trees in your neighborhood or the plants around your, your house or whatever, whatever you have. And just like, be curious, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and, you know, look for indigenous food producers, if there's any in your region and help them to develop. Um, If there's any indigenous culinary entrepreneurs out there, like, you know, throw some support at them. Um, because we need to see more and more indigenous food production and, and and culinary all over the place. Like, there's no reason that we shouldn't have indigenous restaurants in every single city, you know, because I was just in Chicago and my friend Jessica, you know, she runs a small native business and she's the only native culinary business in the entirety of Chicago, which is insane. I mean, considering the full scale and the amount of restaurants that get opened here 
on a monthly basis. I mean, I honestly think it's it's quite a shame that that hasn't happened before. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you think the city and some organizations would just throw a whole bunch of support to help her get set up, you know, and get get things together because Chicago should highlight um, some kind of restaurant that really features the foods of where it happens to sit. Yeah. I mean, even just looking at the name of the city, you'd think that, you know, Absolutely. people would have connected the lines and seen the importance of that. That's just the example that's everywhere. Like, that's just normal. Like, Awamani is just the only restaurant of its kind across the nation at the moment, you know? Yeah. Well, hopefully we we see that change for, for the better. I'll, thank you for your time, Chef. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. <laughs>